Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. Everyone comes at a problem or an issue from their own perspective. So it's their stuff that they're dealing with and it's not personal. However, they're feeling right there and then. It's unlikely in a work environment to be personal to me. It's what they're bringing to it. I try not to take that on if that's not how I'm feeling. So I will not be infected by their feeling. And I'll listen to them and I'll acknowledge it. I think it's really important to always acknowledge when someone is feeling something so powerfully and so strongly it's coming for a reason for them with that, with that strength. So to acknowledge it with them, to, to not not validate it, but not to take it on myself. Unless, of course, I feel that way and then I'll be like, like I'm yeah. with you on this 100% of the way. But to always sort of understand why that strength is coming with it so much, to try and get them to explain that and then listen to them, let them express it and then move on. Today, I'm talking to Louise Hughes, Group General Counsel and a member of the leadership team at the Blair Partnership, a leading literary and entertainment agency. She began her legal career at the leading law firm Rag & Co, moving to the legal team at Penguin Books Limited in 2003. While there, she worked for 13 years supporting the children's and adults divisions in publishing, marketing and licensing. Now at the Blair Partnership, who handle the representation of, among others, J.K. Rowling and the management of the Wizarding World franchise, Louise is actively involved in the day-to-day development of business strategy, deal-making, operations, innovation and governance across the entire group, including both the Blair Partnership and Pottermore. Louise is also a legal trustee on the board of Clapper, Cleflip and Pallet Association. In our conversation, Louise shares how her 11-year-old daughter pinpointed pressure for her, what it's like to be known as the calm in the storm, and how being one of 11 children helps her under pressure. Louise, it's so lovely to have you on Better Under Pressure. Pleasure to be here, Sarah. Thank you for asking me. Very welcome. Why don't we start with the idea of you first noticing pressure? Can you remember when that was? Such an interesting question, and it's really made me think about Mm. pressure. And when I first understood the word pressure, and whether I knew pressure to be pressure when I was younger. So I've been thinking about sort of my early years. And whilst I'm sure I felt pressure at school, I never identified it as such. I quite liked exams, <laughs> I was very studious, and quite liked showing off my knowledge, which I saw exams as a chance to show off what I knew. So I didn't really feel pressure as I understand it today until I think my Mm A-levels, which is when I was, I felt the stakes were higher. So the earlier exams, I quite enjoyed them. As I said, I sort of showed off what I knew. But for A-levels, it was, the results were meaningful because it meant, would I get my place at university? And then would I go on to the career I wanted to do? Um, So I felt the pressure in that kind of increase in stakes. Yeah. And, um, and it made me very determined in how I planned and prepared my exams. 
And being quite studious, I planned quite well in advance and set out like a three month schedule of revision to do for my A-levels and took it all very seriously. So that's probably where I sort of first felt that sort of, um, yeah, that pressure to perform. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, that it sort of morphed into a different meaning for you when the stakes were higher? Yeah, yeah. And I'm hearing that when the stakes are higher, you plan more. Is that still the case? Yes, yes. So I very much feel like I can control the pressure better if I plan for it. And if I can look ahead to where those pressure moments may be, mm-hmm. whether that's an internal meeting, um, an external meeting, a moment with the team, and I can really think about what it is, what I need to do to be my best for that, what information I, I may need to have for that meeting to be able to perform at my best, to get the, the results that I want and the, yeah. the results that are best for that moment. And to think about what could go wrong in that moment as well. So to really anticipate where the conversation might go and how I might respond to that or what information I may need or what the next steps could be. So that when I'm in that moment, things might might change, but I've got those tools with me. Yes. And when you anticipate, I like this idea of, you know, the anticipating. Do you feel, do you sort of allow yourself to sort of scenario plan very, very broadly. And when you are scenario planning, do you then connect with the feeling of the pressure that that might then produce? And I'm just wondering, what's the process in terms of the feeling yeah. when you anticipate? Um, so, yeah, so it is scenario planning. It's the the what ifs. Right. The what if, um, particularly yeah. if it's a negotiation. So I got briefed on what our position is where our red lines are, where we can go. So I'll know the um, the pathways for a, a contract negotiation, for instance, yep. to represent my client's view. But I'll also anticipate where the other side may be coming from, mm-hmm. and what's their challenges, where do they want to go, where have we got common ground, where are we apart? And in those areas where we're apart, what could be the tensions there and the drivers? How can we progress that area and really anticipate those that kind of like bigotry yeah um, and where it might go and what our responses might be to that and it might get to a dead end or a don't know but then at least I'll be prepared for those moments of okay we're going to have to talk more about this area or dig in more in this area to see if we can move it on yes so I'll, I'll anticipate all that in advance and I'll think about how I'm feeling how the um, outcome I want to achieve through that, but also what the other person might be bringing to that conversation as well and where their pressure points might be or where their sensitivities may be based on what I know. Yes. And what does all of that allow you to be when you're actually in the moment? A lot more focused and confident on what I'm doing because I'll feel like I'm ready for it so I can be more in the zone rather than feeling like, oh, I haven't prepared for that and I've been thrown slightly off course and now I'm playing catch up. Yeah. So whilst those moments will still happen because you can't control everything, I'm sort of as best as I can be for the moment. And then while I'm 
in the zone, I'll be able to respond better. Yes. And do you find, actually, it's so interesting, Louise, because do you find that because that's always been a natural um, place for you to go in order to prepare? I mean, ever since A-level, you know, you go, you dig deeper down into the preparation in order to make the pressure better. Do you find that when the curveballs come in, when you haven't got so much time or when, you know, and in your industry, it happens very regularly, doesn't it? That things will just come in like with no warning whatsoever. Do you feel that that process that you go when you can plan for it enables you to be better in those curveball moments? Or do you have to pull something else forward in the curveball moments? I think it depends on the nature of the curveball. Sometimes it can, because I I may have anticipated a curve, at least the chance, the risk of a curveball coming. So when it comes, I'm not too blown by it. Right. And I go, right, okay, right, let's let's deal with this. How, How do we deal with this? How do we take this forward? Do we need to pause? And regroup at another time, or can we continue like that? Yeah. Um, so it does help just even anticipating that curveball moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> even yeah. if you don't know what to do with it right then. There are other times where you do just get blindsided and you have to think on your feet. But I feel if I'm already in a good mental state for that meeting, I think better on my feet. Yeah. Yeah. And can be more in, in the moment to, to deal with it. Whereas if if I feel less prepared, I don't feel like I can give as much. Yeah. What well, What would you say has been your worst moment of pressure? When is it? When has it really been bad, or or has taken you by surprise, or has thrown you in a more um, unknown way? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Um, there's only so much you can prepare for. Yes. And um, <laughs> the nature of my job is is general counsel and as an in-house legal advisor is I'm dealing with quite high pressured situations on a daily basis so I would say I'm quite good at dealing with pressure and responding well in the moment but there are times where um, it's either an ongoing pressure so it's a problem that hasn't got an easy resolution to it and um, it needs where it can be quite emotionally charged with yeah. stakeholders and partners that I'm working with. And the times where I felt that pressure the most is where it's felt quite out of my control. Right. Because of the forces around the nature of the problem. Yes. And um, I then have to really dig deep and work out what's within my control. What can I influence here? What can I not influence? Mm. And focus on the bits that I can influence and say, right, this is where I can move the dial forward or talk to the stakeholder who's feeling really emotional and really listen and hear from them what what the issue is, how to drive things forward. And if there are areas that are outside of my control, be okay with allowing those to sort of, my phrases, to percolate. Yeah. (laughs) To let them (laughs) kind of be and move the stuff I can forward and then try and, you know, marry them up together at the right point. Yes. But in terms of where I felt probably the most pressure is when a few years ago, when I'd um, quite recently taken on the role of general counsel and I was building out my team. Yeah. And I was also handling quite a large project at the time, which was taking up a, a significant amount of my actual time. And I hadn't, on reflection, invested enough time in 
in my team and involving my team in the projects I was working on. And in this vain hope of, of um, anticipating that they would understand mm-hmm. that I wasn't neglecting them, I was just very busy. But now, I'm, you know, hindsight's a great thing. Now I see I needed to have involved and talked to my team and been a lot more open and transparent with my team and involved them in the project or at least what was happening. So they didn't feel this divide between the leader and the team. Yeah. And um, I felt pressure there because I had, I was aware it was happening, but I didn't have the, in a way, the energy to focus on it Mm. and to nip it in the bud early enough. So when it it felt very destabilizing within the team that they hadn't been getting the leadership from me that they needed, I felt a lot of pressure there to to fix it and to refocus my attention on what was important, which was building out the team in the right way. Yeah, and this is a very typical reaction, isn't it? I think when pressure doesn't feel in your control or you feel blindsided, as you said, to go to go narrow, to go to go into your own space. I hear this mm. quite a lot that we just put my head down and let me 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 just get get to grips with what I can control and make all sorts of assumptions, as you said, about how other people are are receiving that or or um, responding to that. So yeah. I like your the point you're making, and I and I hear it a lot around how it takes you narrow if you're not careful and. And maybe your head's saying I'm protecting others from pressure, but actually the re- the reality is they feel very isolated. So what do you what do you do now to mitigate that, Louise? So with with my learning and, and hindsight, yeah, um, I'm very honest and open with my team now, and where I can share with them what I'm doing, I will. If yes. anything is more confidential, I'll say I'm working on this project. I can't tell you very much about it right now but when I can I will and I will also look for opportunities for the team to be part of it too so they're playing roles within those projects and I also very much looked at the structure of my team and built it out so every member of my team is very very clear on scope of their role and the contribution that they make to the business and I spoke very openly to them about how the team supports the business and created a narrative around the contribution that we make right. to the projects that the Blair Partnership and Potom will work on. Yes. And that we're very much positioned as strategic business partners, not just the lawyers in, in the corner that might say no to your project. Yes. And we've done a lot of work with the business in positioning ourselves as business partners who are there to help steer projects and overcome obstacles and work together in collaboration with teams to make things happen. And that very much has made my team feel very empowered within the business. And the impact has been phenomenal. Wow. That's such a strong point. I think Louise, you're talking about there is, is the pressure that some areas in business feel because they're not necessarily um, at the heart of the action I hear this a lot around particularly functional teams where they feel that they're just referred to as and when there's a problem or when something very specific needs to be done and what you're saying there is that you can reduce that pressure of feeling less than yeah 
by actually creating an energizing, powerful narrative for the hobbies. It's not just your team around the role and the part that they play so that they feel much more significant is what I think I'm hearing in your in, in the way you're describing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's they feel very much core to the business yeah. rather than the team to go to if you have a problem, as you say. Yes. They're there right at the beginning, helping to shape decisions, helping to navigate paths and really adding value at every step of the journey. Um, yes. We did um, a company survey a few weeks ago to get some feedback on, on how we're delivering on our objectives of business partnering. And it was a resounding positive response of your great business partners, you're approachable, you're collaborative, you you add value. And it was really motivating to the team to hear it pay back to them. Yeah, I bet. And they feel, as you say, not not isolated, but very much driving the business forward. Yes. And I think what you're touching on for me there is this, uh, the heart of a pressure that you might be feeling, be it as a team or as an individual, when you can understand, when you can tap into the value that you add or the meaning of your job in this particular case or the meaning of who you are, it can really um, turn the feeling of pressure into something else. I, I'm not sure exactly what the word is, but it feels like it's just okay, yeah, the pressure's still the same, but I know the role I play within it. So therefore, it doesn't feel like pressure. It feels much more like a, a strong intention. Exactly that. And that could be really energising and motivating. Yes. And through that energy, then you get more proactivity and greater ideas and better engagement. And and it, the momentum carries the team forward. Yes. Louise has clearly been practicing anticipation and preparation from a very young age. So it really isn't surprising that her preparation muscle kicks in naturally for her when pressure moments arrive. It helps to anticipate the various scenarios and yet there will always be times when we get blindsided. What Louise emphasizes is to focus on what we can control in those curveball moments, our state. It may feel like we're at the mercy of the curveball, but with practice, we know that not to be true. We can all choose our state. When Louise pays attention to her state, she can think better on her feet and be more in the moment to deal with it in the best way she can. It may not seem like it, but we can actually do this when we choose what we can control. The importance of feeling in control and making progress is ringing out in this conversation with Louise and how both control and progress impact our energy. As humans, we all crave progress. It's a fundamental reason for us being alive. This reminds me of an interesting piece of research by Dr. Kabasa. She's a specialist on hardiness, and her research looks at why some people seem hardier than others. Her research looked at almost 850 executives going through deregulation of the telecom industry in the late 70s and 80s. She noticed that some became deeply frustrated and coped badly with the change, while others became invigorated and energized. Her research through interviews revealed three core attributes, which she called the three C's, commitment, challenge, and control. We can intentionally practice and strengthen all three of these attributes, and this is what Louise emphasizes so beautifully. So here are a few thoughts on how to turn pressure into an invigorating and energizing force using those three C's. Be intentional about recharging your commitment. When you've expended a lot of energy, Instead of saying, God, I'm exhausted, or it feels relentless, which only makes us feel even more done to, because remember, the more we talk about it, the more we live it, say instead, 
What impact did I have from the energy I spent today? Pause before you respond to challenge. Ask yourself, what can I control in this? What can I influence? And what is out of my control? There's nothing I can do about it, so there's no point in wasting any more energy on it. How do you recognize pressure building in your team? Pressure in a, in a not so helpful way. So um, in my kind of earlier experience, when I hadn't been so kind of tuned into the team, um, I noticed it quite subtly to begin with, um, less engagement with each other, a little bit more protective of each, each, um, each scope of work, not so much collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, the team currently collaborate brilliantly together and will talk to each other to share ideas and overcome kind of blocks that they might have. Um, I have regular catch-ups with each team member so I can kind of temperature check and just check in on how they're doing. And I can sense from that if if an individual is feeling the burden too much or if a project is starting to overwhelm. So I can check in early on with them and know that they know I'm there to help support them if they need it. Um, Through lockdown was hard. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure every team felt this when you're less, you're not physically together. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we worked hard as a team to make make those moments online as much as we could, just to have a chat, take it away from work, um, and connect on a human level as much as we could. Yeah. Um, and then know that we're we're all there to support each other on the work front too. Yeah. And it's easy to do that in the office now. We're, we're in three days a week together. And that's easier to also then pick up on if if feeling this pressure in the team, this pressure building yeah. any particular area and how to how to jump in earlier to help relieve the valve. Yes. Yes. And and you said earlier on in the conversation that it can be very energy draining, or if you're not, if you haven't got enough energy to deal with some of these either curveballs, predicted pressure moments or unpredicted ones. What would you say are your go-tos to enable you to turn up and deal with all of this in the way you're just describing, Louise? For me, in terms of how I maintain my energy. Yeah. So really, for me, it's like self-care is number one. And I've, again, learned this over the years. I've got two children Mm -hmm. who are 11 and eight and a dog now. Um, <laughs> ten month old cockapoo, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and um, and they need me, and they need and my husband as well. I can't forget to mention him. Mm-hmm. Um, they need me to be, you know, uh, in a good place for them when I'm at home and to have energy. And I'm conscious that because I'm a hard worker and I'm determined, I could keep going at work and not yeah. lift my head up and breathe. So I have to consciously say, how am I looking after myself? How am I nourishing my energy? So I've got enough to give, to look after who I am, but to give to all the people around me. And I do that by exercising. I love running. So I'll make sure I go for a run. It's 
great for my mental health. It gives me that space to really just process thoughts mm-hmm. in that run or just to think about nothing. It's just my time and it's really important time for me. And I meditate at least once a day. And again, that's a really good positive way for me to just pause yeah. and re-energize. Um, and I look after my sleep. I'm quite a religious, <laughs> 10 o'clock to bed, eight hours sleep. Um, and, you know, we'll look after sleep hygiene so I don't drink coffee after two o'clock in the afternoon and try to meditate before bed. So I kind of try and put the day to, to rest before mm. I go to sleep. Mm. And that really helps me perform well the next day because I'm feeling like in control of, of how I am physically and mentally. Yeah. And I've got energy to give outwards. Yeah. Gosh, it sounds like you've really re- worked out your routine that works for you, actually. So, I mean, does the running happen every day at a particular time or, you know, can you be flexible? Because what I often hear, and, and I know with my own self, you know, there's certain things that I know make a big difference to my uh, day. Um, and if I'm not careful, if I don't have it sort of, in a time, in a at a particular time, I I'm my worst. I I can persuade persuade myself that I'll do it later, and then later doesn't happen. So you know, I, how do you make sure that you honour that? Because I think lots of us find that a challenge, particularly when you've got family and you've got other things and other people to look after. Completely. I mean, I'm. It has to be first first thing in the morning. Otherwise, yeah. it doesn't happen. Yes. <laughs> yes. As soon as the day gets in the way, then then I'm done. Yeah. 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 It's really hard. So I know first thing in the morning, it's my time. I set the, the alarm for 6, 6.30. I can get up, get my exercise clothes on and either go for a run or do some Pilates or yoga. And I know that then that's done for the day. And I've yeah. had that sort of energizing time. And sometimes I haven't got, like, I probably go for a run two or three times a week. Sometimes I'll only have 15 minutes in the morning if I've got to get the kids ready for school. Um, I'll take the dog for a walk. So then I'll do a 10 minute yoga session or a 15 minute Pilates. And it just helps me. I feel like it literally kickstarts my metabolism. Yes. I wake up a bit groggy. And as soon as I've done some stretches and I've had that time, I feel ready. I feel ready to go. And if I don't do it on those days when weeks sometimes when life gets really busy and I don't make time to do those things, it carries with me for the rest of the day. I feel slightly off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not quite like I haven't. And, and and my mood goes, I get cranky, I short tempered. I'll end up shouting by the end of the day, either at the kids or my husband. Yes. But <laughs> no, not really... at work, hey, but not at work. No. Interesting. No, I mean, I, no. I think that's so interesting that we save our best energy sometimes for people that actually we don't necessarily love, you know, or, or, or a mainstays of our life. It's interesting, isn't it, how we do that? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so true. What, what I know about you, Louise, is that you have a reputation of calmness. And actually, even in this conversation, you radiate calmness. Um, what what take, do you ever go out of that mood? Do you ever get rocked out of calmness? Or do you choose sometimes yes. not to be calm? That's an interesting one. I am I am known for calmness. And someone said to me the other day, um, you're the calm in the storm. Right. Very composed. Yes. And even 
sometimes even as the pressure gets higher, I get calmer. Okay. Um, yeah. Have I, and someone else said to me at work, I've never seen you get angry. I've never seen you lose it. Mm-hmm. Can you? And I was like, yeah, no, I can. I absolutely <laughs> can. But I, it's just how I've, how I deal with pressure. And, and I've, I've been thinking about this and reflecting on this and, I'm one of 11 children. Um, it's me. Are you really? Yeah. Oh, Louise, I had no idea. I come from a large Irish Catholic family and wow. I'm middle child. So I'm number six in, in the lineup. Wow. So I, my childhood was probably quite full of pressure and chaos. Um, lots of us at home and um, all scrambling for attention. And I think I have just adopted a way of dealing with noise and irregularity and lots of people kind of around me all the time by just being very calm so Mm -hmm. it's sort of in me to to remain calm and and always sort of look through the route through rather than expending energy I do like don't get me wrong I'm not a robot I do get angry and, and I get frustrated and fed up but they tend to be more kind of quick blasts than yeah. sort of sustained yes. anger. And I think that that um, experience of growing up in a big family has has sort of given me many years of, of dealing in quite high pressured environments. And I've adapted to that by remaining quite calm in, in allowing emotion and positioning and posturing to happen around me and me to think okay how what role am I playing in this how how can I move the conversation forward I'll take all this in I'm a good listener like and I'll, and I'll express my own view but in a calm way because I think that that's always a lot more effective yeah um, and then find a way of moving stuff forward I yeah, that sounds like a really honed, great skill that you've learned there. And, and I'm curious to know what happens when you're, because you know you deal with so many different stakeholders in one at one time, and I imagine not all of them are as calm as you. How how do you respond when someone is absolutely at the emotional like tipping point? or have, has already tipped into massive emotional responses in a situation, how do you not catch that? Do you have a, do you have a way of doing that? Or is it just so, so much of an unconscious competence for you now, having been number six of, of 11, that actually it just comes naturally? I'm just wondering if you could undo that process of how you do that. I would say... It is quite hard to reflect on it because I think it is a sort of natural response for me um, and dealing with lots of personality types in my own family. Yes. But trying to deconstruct it, I, I from my perspective, everyone, everyone comes at a problem or an issue from their own perspective. So it's their stuff that they're dealing with yep. and it's not personal. However, they're feeling right there and then it's unlikely to, in a work environment to be personal to me. It's, what they're bringing to it and I try not to take that on if that's not how I'm feeling so I will not be infected by their feeling 
and I'll listen to them and I'll acknowledge it because I think it's really important to always acknowledge what, when someone is feeling something so powerfully and so strongly it's coming you know for a reason for them with that, with that strength so to acknowledge it with them to to not not validate it but not to take it on myself mm-hmm. unless of course I feel that way and then I'll be like yeah like, I'm yeah. with you on this 100% of the way <clears throat> but to always sort of understand why that strength is coming at them coming with it so much to try and get them to explain that and then have listened to them let them express it and then move on yeah have you got a specific example of that Louise that you're able to share when when somebody has come or a group of people have come with something that is emotionally charged and you've had to hold that possibly one or two different reactions all in the same space in order to find a way through do you have anything specific that you're able to share with us I would say it's probably more around um, negotiations that I've been in where I've seen that, where there's a number of different personalities at play and um, it's quite high level. So there's very senior stakeholders yep. and there's a, a number of positions that are sort of jostling yep. around. Um, so in a way, that's an easier, it's sort of easier to take on because it isn't personal. It's about the the deal that's being done. Yeah. And you can contextualize the emotion that's coming with it. So that's how I can not quite put bar- barriers is the wrong word, but un- put understanding around where those emotions are coming from. Yeah. And not take them on personally. Yes. Because I think that's the key, isn't it? You don't, let it? you don't let it come into you. Uh, I think that's what I'm hearing very much from your strategy here is that you have a way of acknowledging the strength of the emotion and there may be many but not allowing it to infiltrate or impact you and I hear that I think the way you're doing that is to not personalize it so you've got the shared intent very clearly above the emotional interaction that's that's how I'm interpreting what you're saying would that be fair Uh, yeah absolutely absolutely that's a really great way of summarizing it it's very interesting actually to think about it like this (laughs) yeah but it because you know one does these things quite naturally or but it's about control you know I always yeah. think what can I control I can control how I react I can't control how someone is but I can yes. control how I react to it yes and is it a good use of my energy to go into battle right now if it's actually what are we going into battle about yeah we're both just letting off steam yeah. sometimes that's useful and good um, and but is it like you have to sort of do that mental calculation yeah What's really striking me from this conversation is this sense of what we all here for, that is the sort of unification of yeah. the various different responses. And I think, you know, I, I think when you're an emotional person and you can get caught up in the pressure that other people are feeling and you take it on and you allow it in, it then does so easily, and I've witnessed it and been part of it, can become incredibly personalised and exacerbated as opposed to what you're saying is let's stay up here I'm doing this with my hands <laughs> um yeah. let's stay up here because this is the thing that unifies all of us in here and my role is to think about that you know what are we trying to do with all yeah, of this absolutely. energy absolutely absolutely and to focus it yeah. and there might be leakage of that energy yeah and then how do we gather back together again yes to, to keep going forward Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I loved your point about 
this conversation, understanding, because I, I really um, feel very passionately that people do things brilliantly and they don't know how. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, because most of our propensity is thinking about how we can always improve something or always, you know, make something you know, faster or, or, or less complex or whatever the, the desire is. And I think often my role is, is saying to clients, you're doing this already really brilliantly, but how do you do it? Because when you can break it down into an actual skill set, then you can then transfer it and apply it somewhere else. Um, yeah. So I really, I mean, really acknowledging your point about hovering over something allows you to see it sometimes differently, or at least give yourself the grace that actually you do that quite well. And actually that is a skill. And it, I may have been running it for years and years, and years of my life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's less vital. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and I think we all have those superpowers, don't we, that we yeah. just take for granted because that's that's what we do and that's who we are. But acknowledging it, you can really harness it. Yeah, I agree. I don't know about you, but when I meet people who have skill sets which are very different from mine, I acknowledge it as a super strength of theirs. The typical response I get is, really? We so often discount a skill worth celebrating because it feels natural or even easy. What's normally behind that skill is years of practice. Louise can choose to remain calm in emotionally charged environments because as one of 11 children, she learnt that as a strategy, one that served her well then and clearly now. She can access her calmness easily when she needs to because she's been doing it for years. I've had quite a few guests on this podcast who either during the conversation or after I've pressed pause on the recording will say things like, blimey, I didn't realise that this was my strategy, or they admit in a slightly surprised tone how helpful it was to interrogate a skill that A, they'd taken for granted, and B, hadn't really deconstructed it to fully understand how they did it at all. When we take time to notice, understand and learn from the components that make up a super strength of ours, we can then choose to either A, optimise it for ourselves, B, apply it in other areas of our life, C, share it with others, or D, all of the above. What do you do quite naturally that is worth deconstructing? If your response to this is, I've no idea, I'm sorry, but I don't believe you. Maybe ask another question. What do others come to you for? Or what feels easy to you that others celebrate in you? Something that you do that you take for granted, that you do without thinking, but if you were to put it under the microscope to explore the how to truly become a student of your own super strength, a scientist in your own behaviour, what might you uncover? I mean, do you believe, Louise, that's you know, the premise of the, of the podcast, do you, you, do you believe that pressure for you in your life is is positive, is growing, is evolving, is important to have. Where, where do you where do you fit on the pressure um, barometer in terms of that? I think pressure can be good. I think pressure can give you that um, push. Yes, to push push you on. Um, we all need a little bit of pressure in our lives. I asked my daughter this the other day. She's she? eleven, and I said. Do you think, um, what do you think about pressure? And she said, this is without any prompting from me, from me. She said, pressure can be good because it gets stuff done. 
but then sometimes it can tip and it can feel a bit much. And I thought that was a really good summary of pressure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought, interesting, at the age of 11, she sees that. Yes. And, and if she and can understand when it tips, what a brilliant gift. Yeah. And and I very much sort of see that, that pressure does get stuff done. It focuses the mind and it pushes you probably more than you would push yourself naturally. You know, one can have a tendency to stay in the comfort zone. But if the pressure's there, fair to push you to do that presentation that you may be dreading or go in on that strategy conversation and work that much harder to get the best results. Yes. That's brilliant because it it makes you perform better in the right environment and circumstances. And it's recognizing when it is starting to tip. So if it's yeah. prolonged pressure and if it's, you know, and you're not looking after yourself and all the other, yeah. you know, there's no equilibrium there. Yeah. Um, and, or and you're not you... getting the right support. Yes. Ah, that's a really good one, isn't it? As well, to understand where you where your support system is in mm. those prolonged pressure moments, which can go on for months. Yeah. Um, if in terms of the tipping point for you, Louise, what's the first sign that it has tipped into unhelpful pressure? I feel it physically. I feel it quite physically. So um I feel anxious. I feel it in my chest mm. and I'll feel it in my, my throat. My throat will get dry. Um, and I'll sort of feel sort of shaky palms and mm. not feeling quite physically right. Mm. Um, and my mood will, will, will dip. I'll feel yeah. quite low and quite short tempered. And that's when I know I need to start taking care of myself. And I go go narrow, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. My, instead of up and out, I stop. And I have a tendency to just work harder, keep my head down and work harder. And I have to remind myself now, learning over the years, to work smarter, not harder. Yeah. And so and, would that and, take you to running? Would that take you to doing something? If you're feeling it physically, do you then look after yourself physically? Yes. Yeah. So that's a warning sign to pull back, mm. delegate more if I'm not already doing that, to use my team better, to use my support network around me, to exercise, to look after my diet, to manage my sleep and re-energize. Fabulous. Could you, at this point, if you had to put your money against two things, Louise, that you would pay forward to anyone listening here who is on the quest to be even better under pressure, what would be your two pay forwards? Mm, right. My first one, I reckon, would be perspective. I've mentioned it before, but have perspective in everything you do. You know, Think about what's, what's within my control here, what's not within my control. Don't worry about the stuff that you can't control. And think about it in the context of your whole life. Mm. You know, ultimately, unless you're a brain surgeon or a doctor, no one's going to die. You know, mm. it's like my mantra is every problem has a solution. You just need to find the the first step to get you on the path to find the, the way forward. So think about what that first step is. Mm. That's number one. Yes. Number two, I've mentioned it, but it's self-care. Look after yourself, because if you haven't got any energy, you're not going to be able to give out. So 
focus yeah. on your energy, focus on on what nourishes you and your soul and your interests and your family. And then you'll be able to give great energy outwards. And do you have, just on that point, please, do you have a conversation with your team about that? <clears throat> I mean, I hear it, it sits very much at the heart of your your life and the way you live with your family. Do you share with your team? Is that part of the way you talk with each other, this sense of nourishment? For the Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I'll talk to them individually. We've talked about it at team meetings and away days, the importance of just really like looking after yourself. Yeah. And if like start, starting to notice if the balance is tipping. Yeah. And then reassessing um, and taking steps. Yes, and, and get also the balance that, back. That invites also other people to be able to like we've got this um this phrase in our team, you know, where we say sort of shed off. Um, you know, because like we can notice that somebody is depleted and you know, in the spirit of love, <laughs> you give them permission to shed off because something needs needs looking after. And I think sometimes in business we can see something in someone before necessarily they had, or because they are, as you say narrowly focused and pushing on through something when actually potentially they'd be better off stepping away yeah absolutely and just having that moment to sort of check in with each other like for us all to understand what what's going on in each of our lives so it's not just about work we're all we're all human beings and we've got stuff going on to just have an awareness of that yes within the team is really really healthy yeah yeah brilliant thank you so much an absolute pleasure Sarah always great to talk to you it is uh, likewise Louise thank you so much for listening to this episode of better under pressure with me Sarah Milne Rowe if you enjoyed it please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method. Alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, goodbye.